They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low effort, low quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig and this is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. And today we're with a real American hero. We're with none other than Mr. Ralph Nader. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It is wonderful to be talking with you. Uh, we have had only a few guests so far, uh, and this was probably at the top of our list of guests we wanted when we started talking about guests. So it's amazing that, uh, that you decided to come talk to us. There's a lot of good people you can interview. Who will never get interviewed. We should actually get a list. But, uh, but, but to begin with, Matt wants to reminisce. Yeah. So, so one thing many people don't know who follow me online and subscribe to our various products is that I was on your 2008 campaign. Um, it was the first time I was formally involved in U.S. politics. It was 19 years old. Um, and I was uh, in the streets 10 hours a day, getting you on the ballot in seven different states. It was quite a, uh, an experience. And one of the things that I, I sort of reflect on when I think about it, that I think people don't give you credit for in, in these campaigns is they always look at it as, well, you know, he didn't win. He didn't have a chance to win. But they don't think about the people that you brought into the process, that you brought into the campaigns and, and into politics. And, you know, but for being on that campaign and getting plugged into progressive politics and all that, I wouldn't have been able to do all the things that I've done, you know, with the new think tank and the podcast and working at the NLRB and, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, to yeah, contribute. Yeah, well, you know, so. that's the collateral benefit of third-party campaigns almost never mentioned. For example, one of the people who worked on my campaign was Gail McLaughlin. In 2000, she'd never been in politics, and then she became uh, mayor of Richmond, California, mm -hmm. and took over the city council with very progressive people, challenged the Chevron uh, refinery that dominated the town. It's a town of about 110,000 people, 70% minority, and um, two books have been written on what she did, and that started with her volunteering on our campaign. Right. Matt probably spoke to more people uh, than he ever had before. Yes, it, I, it, it, it had a lot of personal benefits as well, because, you know, if you're out, uh, I was on it for, for, what, maybe three months, and I remember I collected about 7,000 signatures, and then you're like, okay, maybe only one in four actually signed the thing, so you do the math, and you're like, man, I must have talked to 28,000 people, well, which yeah. is quite uh, an For a experience. shy person. Yeah, for a 19-year-old, <laughs> yeah. you know, Texas. It's, it's great yeah. training, especially if you learn how to be resilient because you're uh, told no 
yes. dozens of times a day, right? Yes, hun- like hundreds of times a day. You keep for going, sure. keep going back, and right. going back. I remember that one of the first gifts Matt ever gave me in our relationship, which began in high school, was his beige Nader's Raiders T-shirt. And one of the first movies we watched together was An Unreasonable Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. Um, That's good to hear. so we have a game we want uh, to play with you and it's a quiz game Uh, and the the title of the game is 2000 Nader campaign plank or fresh democratic party idea yeah so these are these are quotes from either your your platform or a new recent article or recent platform of a new candidate or, or something like that so see if you can if you can pull it out okay so here's here's one idea Guarantee free tuition to public university or community college for all high school graduates. Is that a, a Nader 2000 platform or is that a, a fresh Democratic Party idea? <laughs> it was our platform. <laughs> it was on yeah, Nader 2000. The, yeah, I, I would say that if they brought most of the U.S. troops back from Western Europe decades after World War II, they would not only be able to pay with the savings for tuition-free education at public universities, but they would have provided free tuition for the returning soldiers. Right. And, and I, I don't think many people understand <laughs> that idea. Is not, uh, it's not native even to the, to the Bernie wave. Yeah. It was around uh, yeah, 16 years before. So here's another one. Corporate combinations in everything from supermarkets to oil companies to office supply stores have driven up consumer prices. The merger-driven creation of mega firms often creates too big to fail enterprises that are positioned to receive various sorts of bailouts from the federal government. Fresh new Democratic idea or Nader 2000? Uh, 50 states talking that one up. <laughs> quite, so especially quite. high drug prices, high health care costs. Quite. And even where there were lower prices, they should have been lower because the companies made so much money, they spent it on stock buybacks. So right. if an Apple is going to stock buyback $100 billion this year, <laughs> my question is, why don't they lower the price of their iPhone? Right. It's quite uh, prescient because uh, eight years later, of course, uh, we had the, the financial meltdown in which the banks were too big to fail, and we did have to bail them out. So, right, uh, and Obama just bailed them out. I mean, he just, uh, instead of going for the homeowners who were underwater and losing their homes, he bailed out the banks. Not only should they have gone to the homeowners instead of bolstering the corrupt banks who are at it again with their speculation, but there was a proposal by a Stanford economics professor in the Wall Street Journal that said, if you're going to have this kind of money, set up 10 brand new banks with $30 billion each, which would allow them to loan $300 billion each and structure them so they're accountable. Mm-hmm. So they, they had, he had all kinds of options, but he went the easy way. He became a toady of Wall Street, just like his predecessor presidents. And uh, right. now he's been going around saying they owe him a thank you. Yeah, did you see that? He, he was in, I think it was in Texas, and he was being interviewed on stage, and he said, you know, the bankers, uh, they, they were so mean towards me, but they really should have thanked me because look how much the stock market went up when I was president. How much money they made during his presidency. So we have another one. Okay. That, that's how narrow his frame of reference is. I mean, that's a telling commentary on what he yeah. really did. Yeah. Sort oh, of I inverted know. candor. Mm-hmm. 
Healthcare should be provided by a national health insurance program providing comprehensive benefits to all Americans throughout their lives and funded directly by the federal government, known as a single-payer system. Yeah, well, that's another one I reverberated before audiences all over the country. I also pointed out that Canada, a country where people look like us, have had it since the late 1960s, and they cover everybody and give them free choice of doctor and hospital at half the average per capita price that we pay today in this country, and with 30 million people still uninsured under Obamacare and millions more underinsured. To put it specifically, in Canada, it's about $4,500 per capita to cover everybody. And in the U.S., it's over $9,500. And all these people still are not covered. And 35,000 of them die every year because they can't afford to get diagnosed and treated in time. Nobody dies in Canada because they can't afford to get diagnosed and treated in time. Everybody is covered with that Medicare plastic card that they have. So now that single payer, you know, Medicare for all has kind of become, uh, you know, at least a major idea inside the Democratic Party. Why do you think we're looking at a number of candidates for 2020 who are, you know, not explicitly in favor of Medicare for all, you know, who are kind of wishy-washy or swishy on it? Where do you think the resistance is coming from in the Democratic Party? First, they don't know how to argue the case. They're out of practice, uh, afraid of the word socialism. It's actually public funding and private delivery already, you know. Half of the bills in this country are paid by government, federal government, state government, local government, Medicaid, Medicare. Um, so one, they don't know how to argue the case. Second, they don't want to argue the Canadian uh, example for some bizarre reason. Um, and third, and most important, is that uh, they, they don't use all the arguments they have. For example, 5,000 people a week die from preventable problems in hospitals in this country, according to a Johns Hopkins School of Medicine peer-reviewed study over two years ago. Just think of that, 5,000 a week. And they said that's the minimal figure. And that occurs when there's a lot of over-treatment and over-diagnosis and fee-for-service. It's endless. Uh, and uh, it's not that n nobody is malpracticed in Canada, but the, they don't have the perverse incentives to expose yeah. uh, patients to more and more risks and more and more treatments, more and more drugs, more and more x-rays. And the second thing uh, they don't point out is that according to Malcolm Sparrow at Harvard University, a person I talked about during the campaign, he's an applied mathematician, he says the minimal fraud in the computerized billing uh, in the healthcare industry in the U.S. is $350 billion a year. That's 10% of everything that's spent. And he says that's the minimum. Well, you don't see that in Canada. People don't even see a bill. Yeah. I mean, everything is, you know, the, the hospitals have certain budgets, mm -hmm. and you don't see these reams of computerized printouts with often phony entries, ghost surgeries, you know, mm -hmm. ambulance prices that, you know, d didn't travel. Uh, so I think that's the reason these new members of Congress need a tutorial. They really need a seminar. Instead, they go to the Kennedy School, right, where they hear yeah. about corporate uh, viewpoints. You heard about yes. that. Yeah. At, at, uh, at least they exposed that, Ocasio-Cortez and uh, yeah. uh, Rashida Tlaib. So here's uh, one last uh, on our quiz. 
Global warming, a clear and present danger, demands that the United States take immediate action to reduce its emissions of greenhouse gases, foster a rapid switch to a much more efficient technologies, dramatically step up investments in public transit, and launch a program to finally harness the plentiful supply of solar energy. It is now past time for the United States, the leading greenhouse gas emitting nation, to take far-reaching steps to speed toward the cleaner, more efficient economy that the global warming threat must ultimately induce. The key is long past due. I mean, we've known for this for decades, and it's interesting. And this was 2000. This yeah, is, in 2000. And so, so, but just know. think of this. When Clinton and Gore took over in uh, 1992, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they won the election in 1992. In 1993, they released a beautiful report uh, warning people of global warming mm -hmm. in real detail. Urgent, urgent, urgent. And what did they do? Uh, they gave the auto companies eight years of no regulation of fuel efficiency and air pollution. And they basically abandoned a federal role in this area. And we lost another eight years. Um, I found that there was actually more excitement in 2000 on global warming around the country than there is today. Because today, there's sort of, it's sort of ho-hum. Yeah. Uh, the, the, it, it's called warning fatigue. Mm. You know, there have been so oh, many yeah. warnings, and even though the storms have illustrated and the fires and everything have illustrated, um, it's not developing this, the level of urgency that I thought we were building up in, in 2000. It's amazing that now when you hear about, you know, sort of climate change in in democratic politics. And there are a lot of politicians on the democratic side who I think are trying to do, I mean, so, so, so what do you think about the Green New Deal? Have you sort of read about that? Yeah, that was uh, originally created by a professor, Robert Poland of um, University of Massachusetts, the most radical economics department in the country. He's the son, by the way, of Abe Poland, who owned the Wizards oh, and was oh, a philanthropist really? here. Mm -hmm. And uh, he developed that a long time ago. He did it on commission to the California Nurses Association even uh, before. It's so obvious. It's more efficient. It's more safe. It's more money in people's pocketbooks. It's more protection of the natural resource base. It's more protection of the environment. It's respect for posterity. It's a better allocation of capital. It doesn't get us in geopolitical wars. It doesn't concentrate power in the hands of a few giant coal, oil, gas, nuclear companies, because by definition, green power is decentralized. Right. So you make all these arguments, and large audiences around the country sort of nod, and then they clap, and then they drift away. Yeah. They don't realize that if they developed Congress watchdog groups in every congressional district, by now they would have had a green economy, a solar Power, wind power is already uh, the leading source of new electric generation in the world. Already, even without a major pu push by the U.S. or by the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, that all comes back to lack of organization on the most powerful, although smallest branch of government, uh, Congress, which has 535 people with known names. So how many times do... Have I said that in the campaigns? You've got the power. The, the Constitution says we the people, not we the corporation, or we the Congress. Mm -hmm. And they don't seem to believe it, even mm -hmm. though you give them examples of how people made a difference with just a few people. Uh, 
and never mind 1%. Never takes more than 1% of the people organized uh, in congressional districts to turn Congress around if they represent majority opinion. What is 1% of the people? It's a dream number of people. Yeah. Talk to anybody who has a cause and say, what if you had two and a half million people? What? Right. Yeah. Imagine, as a hobby, most hobbies take three to 500 hours a year, stamp mm -hmm. collecting, coin collecting, and people spend 500 bucks a year. So if you had a hobby watching Congress and put that kind of money in with less than 1% of the people, just like that. And a lot of them are left-right issues. Yeah. Left-right issues, you know. I wrote this book, Unstoppable, Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State, on page 62 or so. I had 24 major redirections in the country. They're supported by liberals and conservatives. Back where they live, work, and raise their family. That's the key. Yeah. Not at some abstract, ideological, manipulative level. So how do you feel, I mean, seeing the sort of new, you know, I guess, what is your read on the new left that's come up since, you know, the young people who've gotten involved in politics since Sanders ran in 16, who are running with so many of the ideas that, you know, you sort of put out on a national stage in 2000? What is your read on this, this new movement? Heavy emphasis on fairness and equity, not enough emphasis on the displacement of corporate-dominated power yeah. in the country. Yeah. So you, you, can, you can persuade 90% of the people that there's an inequality problem in the country. Mm -hmm. But if you don't displace corporate power, you'll never raise the minimum wage to where it's a living wage. You won't get single payer. You won't get criminal prosecution of corporate cr criminals. You, you won't get a redirection of public budgets instead of trillions for war and empire, trillions to rebuild our community services all over the country with good paying jobs that can't be exported. Um, and that's the missing thing with the new left. They don't have a philosophy of displacing corporate power. So what would that look like? What is a good philosophy as we're displacing well, corporate power? The first just to uh, prosecute the corporate criminal laws and get stronger corporate mm -hmm. criminal laws. That's so you one. had the, that piece in Laugham's Quarterly, Land of the Lawless. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, but there are a lot of things. Look what displaces corporate power. One, getting rid of money in politics, because money nullifies people's votes so often. Another way is consumer cooperatives. Mm -hmm. So you have consumer cooperatives at the local level displacing Whole Foods, Amazon, uh, Exxon Mobil with, you know, have local sustainable, uh, renewable energy. Mm -hmm. The big banks, you have it with uh, co-op banks or credit unions or community banks, on and on. Now, that's another way of shifting. A third way is expanding labor unions because mm -hmm. that curtails corporate power, limits some of the shutdowns without notices, without justification. Another way is you open up the courts and the civil justice system so people can provide their own initiative, not ask anybody for permission to file class actions and other tort law initiatives. You know, tort law is grossly underutilized. 99% of wrongfully injured people never see a lawyer. Yeah. It's not just bullying, street crime, women, harass sexual harassment. It's product safety defects. It's uh, hospital uh, malpractice, hospital-induced infections, um, 
toxic air, toxic water. And so every time corporations hazards, you know, they get away with that, yeah. they sort of you know, become stronger, right? Because they've cemented their control. Yeah. But notice all these ways of deconcentrating power, they'll poll in the 80% level. Yeah. They'll be an unstoppable political force, but the left doesn't read enough about corporate power, corporate history, the struggles in the past. For example, if you ask 50 of the hardcore left activists in this country, what do you own? Here's a pad for every one of you. Put down everything you own, and I'll get back to you in 15 minutes. So you come back, I say, read it off. He said, well, I own a car, motorcycle, clothes, music. I own a um, savings account. I own uh, furniture. I own a gift card, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it gets more and more trivial. Yeah. So there are, I own paper clips. Yeah, yeah. I got some paper clips. Right. I say, is that all? Now think about it. Is that all you own? And they never will come and say, we're co-owners of the greatest wealth in the country. The public lands onshore, offshore, mm -hmm. the public airwaves, trillions of dollars of government R&D that built all these corporations, Silicon Valley, half the pharmaceutical industry, most of the aerospace industry, the containerization industry, mm -hmm. the, the biotech industry, and, and we get nothing in return right. except manipulation. You see how untutored they are. This iPhone, if Marx was operating today, he would not say religion is the opiate of the masses. He would say, this iPhone is the opiate of the masses. It's shredding their brains only to be surpassed by the forthcoming Oculus Riff. <laughs> the, the, the VR, yeah. That's the final blow. That's yeah. yeah, yeah. So these sort of like quick hit, very exciting um, sort of technologies that just like set off electricity in your brain. You're saying sort of keep you distracted from sort of like long game yes. plotting politics that take organization and time. Well, there, yeah. Somebody call it weapons of mass distraction. Yeah. They were called. Yeah. And anyway, to get to the point is if you don't know history, the, the big struggles in history, there were religious struggles and so on, but they were over property. And the struggle was, centuries ago, who's going to own it? Yeah. Is it going to be the lords of the manor, the vassals, the serfs, peasants? Who's going to own it? Well, the people began winning that. Yeah. You know, you had the Homestead Act. You had the other things in Europe. And so, and then you had development of pensions. People owned yeah. pensions. They had savings. They owned savings. They're recognized by law. So what did the corporations do? They just set up a system with their corporate lawyers where they controlled what people own. So they, the people own the public lands, public airways, and the corporations control them. 24-7, they control the radio and TV stations. 24-7. The left has completely abandoned any participation in the public airways. And it, just look at Saturday afternoon, network TV. It's... It can hardly prevent you from throwing up. And I look at it once in a while to see how my property's being abused. You know, uh, infomercials, bicycles flipping over in races, grade B <laughs> movies, right? And I say to myself, is that all that's happening in America? Well, this kind of question 
would never occur to the young generation because they don't read history. They don't read that now the maximum form of corporate uh, power is they control what we own. They control trillions of dollars of pension funds who own a big slice of the New York Stock Exchange companies. Mm -hmm. They control the mutual funds. You put the mutual funds and pension funds together, and guess what? They control majority of the stocks of the Fortune 500. So this, this iPhone is a menace. And I just talking to a relative of mine, she's 23, and she just walks around with this thing in her hand. I says, you know, this is shredding your brain. She says, no, it isn't. Uh, I'm, um, I'm doing work on it. I said, well, uh, when was the last time I saw you holding a newspaper or a book? Oh, she said, well, I read online. I said, well, when was the last time you read the Washington Post? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Said, well, you know. Posting does destroy your brain. I There's no doubt about that. that. Being on the internet has made me dumber. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, what the left would say about sort of getting a hold of these publicly owned assets is that we can't compete with corporations that control them. How do we get the money and the manpower and organize the people to sort of take back what belongs to us? It's called Congress. Yeah. Congress is your Kyber Pass. Mm-hmm. To the promised lands. <laughs> 535 people can change corporate charters. They can change uh, the powerlessness of shareholders. Uh, they can uh, restrict executive compensation. And if they can't, they can tax it above a certain level. They can call uh, stock buybacks six to seven trillion dollars in the last 10 years. Think of that. Yeah. Totally unproductive use. They don't know how to use their cash. Marx never foresaw that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, drowning in cash. And in 1982, the SEC changed its practice and called it okay. It was considered stock manipulation by the bosses yeah. and prohibited. So, so it's, a, it's all Congress. It's a matter of going it's all right Congress. to legislation. Congress has huge power to use our sovereign power, which is fundamental and unsurpassed in the Constitution, to change the country. But you can't believe how many people skip the Congress and say, how, how are we going to go to these shareholders meeting? They shut us down and they, you know, they do what they want. And yeah. Congress... If I liked the phrase, which I don't, I would say, it's the Congress, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, so, so, I mean, it feels like even getting to Congress is impossible because corporations have bought so many of them. That's why I wrote this book. Which is great, by the way. How the Rats Reformed the Congress. We did the best-selling book on Congress in the 1970s called Who Runs Congress? Many editions. And you couldn't get it published today because publishers say nobody wants to read about it. So I use the fable. And that, that 160 pages is the power tool of citizens who want power to restore the sovereignty of the people over Congress and redirect the directions uh, of our country from the cliff to the horizons of what we can become and pass on to our posterity. And so it's just out. And uh, has, it's been called disgusting and revolting by people on Capitol Hill because of the, because of the way it starts. Uh, but uh, actually, there is a rat infestation in Washington, reported in the Washington Post. Maximum number of complaints. Oh, we report on it every day. Yeah. And there's a rat infestation in the, in the catacombs in Congress. Yeah. 
And um, so... Uh, you can't it, make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, any, I, I, I dedicated it to Voltaire and Mark Twain, for obvious reasons. And if anybody doesn't think it's a way to make you laugh yourself seriously enough to organize, look at the back cover, and you'll see the most concise indictment of Congress ever put together on one page. I really do appreciate there's this bullet point list of all of the things that Congress is doing sort of to keep people away from politics, to keep citizens sort of at a disadvantage. Right. And, and it, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's already following my cardinal rule of a decaying society, which is the worst is first and the best is last. So well, that you, this will not be reviewed. Yeah. But the most frivolous books, the most ideologically bigoted books are reviewed in newspapers and uh, magazines around the country. The worst politicians get, get elected, Nixon, not McGovern. The worst books are number one, two. Look at O'Reilly's already on the yeah. bestseller list. Bigoted books are on the bestseller list. Terrific books. People know all about Steve Brannon. They've forgotten about Ramsey Clark, mm -hmm. the great peace advocate and due process uh, lawyer who was formerly attorney general under Lyndon Johnson. So you just go through the entire uh, political uh, economy. The one great exception is sports. <laughs> Where the the yeah. best is usually first. Yeah. I'm not talking about the character of the of the athletes, but yeah. in terms of the teams. Yeah. Right. And that's why people love sports. There's a beginning and an end. And the winners usually are the best players. You, you think that people really tune into sports because it's actually meritocratic. It, it really is the best who win. Yeah, because they, they think what happens, they think there's a payoff or mm -hmm. a, uh, a, you know, a Black Sox scandal in 1920. I mean, it destroys, it destroys sports. If yeah. there's over, they, they have different ways of doing it through the NCAA and, yeah. and so on. But if, if, for example, the Boston Red Sox won the pennant uh, earlier this year because three people on the pitching staff of the Dodgers were bribed? You think people would go back to their knitting and their marbles? <laughs> they would go berserk, right? Yeah, right. yeah, okay. exactly. Because like the they the were told that this is a game where you play on the merits. Right. Sports is an interesting topic because i know you started or, or or led the league of fans is that right still and operates league of fans.org league of fans i actually met with the editor sports editors the washington post oh yeah and i suggested that they change the title of their section so they call it spectator sports okay because <laughs> it's all it is that's right, participatory sports. yeah yeah well so that's an interesting question so there were some reports recently that uh youth sports has become more and more um, stratified that you have affluent families are putting their kids in these travel select yes. leagues and then poor families are trying to maybe have some community-based leagues, yes. but then the the kids get discouraged because they don't have the resources that other kids have. And like, yeah. I mean, have, have you, what, what, what are you, there's awful on discrimination, that? economic stratification, the use of, physical enhancing drugs uh, is very bad. Starting at middle school, uh, excessive specialization, they immediately stratify where the kids are mostly spectators and the few middle school, high school kids are the stars. 
Um, and, and that goes without saying, and the League of Fans has documented that. There's cover-ups on concussions for years, as we all know, terrible uh, tort trauma. Uh, but once they're on the field, merit is supposed to prevail. Right. So one thing about Matt that's interesting is Matt played baseball, football, and basketball. And wrestling. In Texas, and was briefly in wrestling in, in yeah. high school. Yeah. High school and before then. And, uh, and uh, we were both on the debate team together. And so Matt always loved these kind of just, Matt comes from a very poor family, but he loved these places where you just had fair competition, where whether you were rich or poor, yeah, that's true. you yes. could win yeah. if you were good. Yeah, was, that's my, my point. Yeah. And, right. and yet in debate, they managed to foil him. A little bit. A little bit. And this set off a, like a lifelong neurosis <laughs> where rich kids, rich, rich teams in our area, we were at a public school with a small yeah. debate team, but private schools could buy briefs. They could send their kids to expensive camps. They could afford really good coaching. The and Library could, of Congress materials. Right. And they could also yes. enroll no, like 60 yeah. kids in a tournament yeah. so that when you debated a kid, they would write down your case and give they it to their... They would scout your case. Oh, and my. give it yeah. to their coach. And yeah. then we only had, what, four kids yeah. on our team? So Three? We oh, couldn't yeah. send our scouts out to get all of their arguments. And yeah, stuff, I wouldn't but. put debates in the category of meritorious no, behavior. No, no. That's what... Even, yeah. even the debate itself. A right. lot of times the most emotional rhetoric would win with the judges. Yeah. If they have patriotic rhetoric and they don't want to, you know. Sure. Matt quickly learned uh, and actually produced a manifesto heretofore unreleased um, about, you know, just how unfair it was, basically, that you you could be the smartest kid, you could write the best case, and you would still lose because of of other schools' tactics. But there's still something both in the debate and the sports realm where, okay, yeah, the endowments are different. But when you get there... There is a one-on-one. You do have a chance yeah, to do. actually hit them yeah. in the rules. And that, there's something thrilling about that, even if you're like, yeah, they had better prep, they had better yeah. training. It's like, all right, who cares? It's time to go, you know? And that's, that's not a feeling you get very much in society. Like, you don't get that feeling at your job. Yeah. You can't, you know, be like, well, I'm better than, than my manager. Yeah. It doesn't matter, you know? Well, the one flying ointment of meritorious sports activity is the umpire's. <laughs> exactly. yeah. incompetent or yeah. as was the case in the NBA in one championship between the Lakers and Sacramento is really bias overt bias and the favor of the Lakers because they attract the biggest audiences yeah. on a lot of the so, calls penalties. so much of your politics seems about this very idea of just like one person being able to make a big difference by being right hmm. And by being just and by having the correct point, I mean, having the law on their side or being able to organize, having knowledge of how to get people together and make a difference. And I feel like on the left today, not just the left, but especially felt on the left, so many people just feel despair. They feel like nothing they do can make a difference. These corporations are so big. They're so well-funded. I mean, it almost seems like the sort of corporate side of the Democratic Party has already picked not only who they're going to run in the 2020 primaries, but they, they've already picked who's going to win. Even with I mean, social media, they feel that way? In their mind, yeah, yeah. I mean, watching the, the responses you get for mild criticisms, you know, of particular candidates, um, you, you can see them say, well, you know, for, for example, Beto O'Rourke, how dare you criticize him? Do you want Trump to win? And I'm like, we haven't even had the primaries. You have to give us a chance to have the primaries. But in their mind, yeah. the primaries are already over. Yeah. 
right? And they have who they, you know, and there's, there's no opportunity for sort of like debate, discussion, persuasion, comparing mm. points, records, policies. And so I think so many people just feel totally crushed under despair. What do we do about well, that? Well, first of all, they're not arguing their case properly because third parties often have a defensive posture and, um, and uh, they're almost uh, blistered by moonbeams right, for <laughs> criticism. Yeah. And they let themselves be marginalized. The way to argue it is, uh, you don't want me to run? Right, you shouldn't run. Okay. Do you know when candidates run, they're using their First Amendment rights of speech, petition, and assembly? Yes. Are you telling me to shut up and not speak? Pause. I said, you know, if you disagree with me, you can oppose me, but if you say don't run, you're telling me to suspend my sacred First Amendment rights. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm not saying that. I just don't, I, I don't want you to spoil the thing. No, you're telling me to shut up. You are censoring me. Yeah. Because if you don't want me to spoil it, you're free to oppose. You're free to vote against me. You're free to get other people to uh, uh, use their freedom of uh, uh, speech rights against me. But you're trying to shut me down just like any dictatorship would. And I mean, that, that actually, I'm so, so some listeners who aren't familiar uh, with your campaigns will probably think like, like a dictatorship, come on. But there were actually like, what, Pennsylvania Democrats who committed felonies in the process of trying to keep you off the ballot? Oh, yeah, it was, more, like than, it was, it was more than just denunciation. Sure, yeah. they had partisan judges. And in Pennsylvania, by the way, unlike all other states, each little court decides uh, whether the signatures on the petition are okay. Yeah. So like one, one day we received a notice on Thursday to appear in 15 Pennsylvania courts Monday morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where in other states, it's the Secretary of State. Yeah. Not that that's any bargain, but it's, it's at least more convenient. Yeah. Um, and so here's what they would do. We would get like 50,000 signatures and we needed 30. To get on the ballot. To get on the ballot. Yeah. And they would say, uh, the address of this signature is, is not the same as the address of the person when that person registered to vote for the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, the person moved. <laughs> right. You know, mm-hmm. or the signature is different than the person's signature at age 21. Uh, so they had all these, some of them were, were illegal, even under Pennsylvania law. Yeah. So the argument against us was carried by the corporate law firm in Pittsburgh that represented the Democratic Party. And when it went up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, the, the chief justice didn't recuse himself, even though he's being represented on an ethics charge by this law firm <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And two others were getting campaign money mm-hmm. from this law firm mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. That's how corrupt it was. And they didn't recuse themselves. There was a great dissent, which laid it all out by one of the justices, but we lost. And they bumped us off the ballot. And... Uh, that wasn't the only time. We were sued 24 times in 12 weeks all over the country. Uh, By in, the Democratic Party in, in, in each state. In 2004. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so do you see any of this kind of stuff happening to Bernie or, or, you know, during his last run? I know you wrote for us at The Post about Bernie's decision not to run as an independent, even though he's, you know, long been an independent, but he's caucused with the Democrats. So, so there were reasons. But do you see them, you know, still trying that same stuff on candidates who run to the left? Yeah, the, in New York primary, for example, the Democrats will go after really progressive Democrats, try to bump them. There's so many tricks in New York statutes. Mm -hmm. They'll bump their own party uh, fellow uh, mm -hmm. in a way that uh, in the final election they would try to harass the Green Party candidates, for example. And then the worst thing is the top two. Are you familiar with the top two? In California. Uh, California and Washington State still going mm -hmm. through the courts. The top two in the primary are the only people who go to November. So mm -hmm. third parties never go to November. Yeah. I mean, that I think is unconstitutional, but is yet to be adjudicated uh, by the Supreme Court. They never stop trying to install, entrench the corrupt two-party duopoly. Yeah. You know, years and years ago, someone whose name I can't remember said, I don't care about the voters. Just let me control the nomination process. Right. Yeah. Because well, so then you get to set the choice up for them. Sure. Well, so what, what, what do you think about alternative uh, systems? Um, I mean, I, I know before you come out for instant runoff voting, have you thought about proportional representation? I mean, what would your ideal electoral system look like? Well, it's not as radical as an, a recent book titled Against Elections. Uh-huh. You know about that movement? No, I don't. Was that? Basically... They say elections will always be controlled, uh -huh. and the people running and rerunning will always be controlled. So they say, let us have the choice of lawmakers randomly. Oh yeah, by lot. Just to, yeah. yeah, just just the way jurors, you know, uh -huh. jurors are, are supposed to be chosen. So. I haven't yet thought through that yet. <laughs> trying to figure out. <laughs> it's like what Buckley said. He'd rather, you know, have 50 people pulled out of the phone book. <laughs> right. Um, so I am for term limits, but not six years. 12 years. Uh, instant runoff voting. Good luck. I just think a lot of people are not going to go to second and third choices. I mean, yeah. you're lucky if you get them to come. Yeah, to vote. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. They're more likely to do it to city level yeah. for second and third. So that's good. Um, I, I'm, I'm in favor of Jeanette Rankin's lifetime reform, which was you run at large. So the only way she got elected as first woman in Congress in 1916 is two members, two seats in Congress ran at large in Montana. And she came in number two. Uh -huh. Whereas she probably wouldn't have come in number one if they split the state in half. So yeah. she spent part of her glorious lifetime, in addition for women's rights and labor, she shames feminists today. The old feminists, <laughs> the old feminists were unbelievably fundamental. Oh, especially on labor. Everything, right? war, peace, yeah. everything. Yeah, I think they get a bad rap because of the connection to prohibition. Oh, yeah. So people see them as sort of these like unconscionable prudes. Yeah. But they were such hardcore women where it came to oh. labor, peace, abolition. Oh, and they're amazing. And the consumer yeah. movement, by the way, in the 1890s. Really? Oh, yeah. Again, mm -hmm. they took on against massive inflation. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who started the consumer movement. The feminists of the 1890s yeah. started yeah. the consumer movement. Wow. I was uh, writing a book on women's rights in the early 60s and then... Uh, you know, uh, 
I, I, I was about a third of the way through when, what's the name of that? Why am I remembering the key book that came out? Uh, was it The Feminine, Feminine Mystique? Mystique? Yeah, yeah Feminine Friedan. Mystique came out. Yeah. So I turned my attention to GM. <laughs> Betty Friedan, take it away. Yeah, yeah she's got it under control. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so just to finish, yeah. I am for initiative referendum recall. Mm-hmm. I am for proportional representation, public funding of campaigns, um, the public mandatory debate, so inclusion. Yeah, I mean that that alone can, uh, finishes off third parties. Right, you don't have yeah. a chance to have a chance. Yeah. By the way, when people say. How many times you won for president? I said, four times I ran for the media. Okay. I wasn't running for president. Yeah. I couldn't get through to run for the president. Yeah. I was running for the media. I once had a, uh, so frustrated, I had a news conference right in front of the post. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had I'll tell a, you a lot. I had a button that said, let Ralph debate. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. See? Yeah. So this should be, if you're on the ballot, you're on a debate, period. Yeah, right? I think that's fair. And then, of course, uniform ballot access laws. Uh, the idea of every state deciding how someone running for federal office uh, rules, mm-hmm. the state rules decide how they run for fe- is nonsense. Right. I mean, really, if, I mean, they may have their own rules for state offices, but for federal, there should be a uniform rule. It shouldn't be like 500 signatures in Tennessee and until recently 120,000 in North Carolina. Yeah. And then you have to double it because you have to, you know, they strike arbitrarily so many, uh, so many names. And uh, ballot access reform will increase the number of voices and choices and third parties. Because the genius of the duopoly is they don't give you a chance to have a chance. Yeah. Therefore, they can always ridicule you. Because yeah. they say, look, you know, you only got 1% of the vote or half right. a percent of the vote. And uh, and it's a, it, it doesn't even learn from nature. Imagine if trees in a forest didn't let yearlings have a chance or seeds to have yeah. a chance to grow, you know, and it's going to rot. It'd just be suffocating. And and I think that even you know, so when you ran, uh, you know, third party, the Democrats would say, you know, run in a primary, just run in the primary if you want to be a left candidate who you know has a shot. Yeah. And so Bernie Sanders did that. He did run in the primary. And, and he, he really he really would have won if it wasn't for the Democratic Party messing in Nevada and uh, Iowa. That was very those are very close. He won New Hampshire in a landslide. He would have been on a momentum where they couldn't have stopped him. It, dirty tricks defeated him. It was it was really strange. He would say to people, I don't want to be another Nader, meaning I don't want to run on a third party yeah. and be called a spoiler. But he got the same treatment. He got it's it anyway. the exact same treatment. Absolutely. That's what we saw. So, so here actually, uh, you know, one of the ways you can deal with despair, I find, is humor. Um, and that's why I really liked how the Rats reformed Congress. Um, but also, I, uh, I have some quotes here of yours that I think are some of the funniest <laughs> the quotes. The greatest, the greatest uh, of all time. In terms of having a sense of humor when dealing with the Democratic Party. Um, so one of them is the famous quote, I do think that Al Gore cost me the election, especially in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've said it, you know, I, I must have been a real threat because look at all the money, uh, the, the top, t- look at all the money the Republican Democrats spent to beat me. 
I know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asked you, do you, have, I came uh, in third. Do you yeah, have right. any regrets about 2000? You said, yeah, that I didn't get more votes. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That's what all that politicians are. Everybody right? who runs wants to win. Um, there was a, a great quote where you were interviewed by the New York Times, I think, in 2001, and they asked you, uh, aren't you worried about how the Democratic Party is going to respond to you now as a divider? And you said, that assumes I care about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I care about, you know, 60,000 workers dying from workplace-related diseases every year that is ignored by the Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, I ignore... I, I care about all these people losing their homes or being ripped off that are ignored by the Democrat. Why should I care about the Democratic Party when it doesn't care about the people? Right. Yeah. And the, the last and probably most famous is the only difference between the Republican and Democratic parties is the velocities with which their knees hit the floor when corporations knock on the door. And that is what outraged the Democrats the most. I know. We, we, there was someone on Twitter just yesterday that sent that at us angrily and it was just like oh, they're so upset about this quote that that drove them nuts because that yeah. showed the similarity and the closeness of the two parties on corporate issues and the way they got around they say you mean we don't have a difference on social security and medicare and child yeah. care and so on as i'm talking about the major power structure holding our country back and driving it into the ground and you're closer and closer to the Republicans on corporate power and the supremacy of Wall Street over Washington. Capital. It's the control. It's, yeah. the, it's the hegemony of capital. Yeah. Capitalism. Like they know that the returns to capital are accelerating ahead of the returns to labor. Big time in the last yeah. 30 years. They've done nothing about it. Right. Yeah. And then recently, uh, Obama even remarked on uh, the degree to which uh, the stock prices and the returns on capital ran up really high during his election, which or during his presidency, which seems to, you know, once again sort of confirm the the basic point that that you were making even even in 2000 and in the 90s that you know whether it was in 1980 or something turned in the Democratic Party where they just they stopped really caring about that, even though they had you know yeah they're a little bit better on the environment, a little bit better on on some of these other issues, but. You know, when it comes to the corporate sector, it doesn't seem like they... It's because they started lot. dialing for the cor same corporate dollars competing with the Republicans, and they came with strings attached. We saw the decline yeah. in congressional hearings. We couldn't get them. We saw the changes in the regulatory agencies, the um, kind of appointments that are made. Money talks with many tongues. Yeah. And so, by the way, this business of Obama is talking about Wall Street is up and so on. That's, a, that's a, this, the characteristic of a plutocratic monetized mind. That's not the characteristic of a just mind. Because who benefits from increasing stock prices, you know? Uh, top 10% of the people. They say, oh, but the pension funds, yeah, but <laughs> that assumes that stock prices are not going to crash for the next 5, 10, 20, yeah. 30 years, you know. But in the immediate future, the gains go overwhelmingly to the top 1%, and that's been studied again and again in terms of economic growth since 2009. So do you see any signs of sort of hope in, in Democrats now who are, you know, for example, explicitly running campaigns where they take money only from small donors, no PACs, no corporations, um, and, uh, you know, their campaigns, therefore, kind of, you know, explicitly aim to exclude, you know, corporations, PACs um, from people and even very wealthy individuals 
you know, the people, mm. the Democrats who run only using small donors, because I think a trick they use is to say, well, we don't take money from corporate PACs, but they do take huge donations from wealthy, wealthy individuals. Mm. But some Democrats say, you know, no, only small donors. Uh, that's it. No corporations, no PACs, no extremely wealthy um, donors. Uh, and do they give you hope like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or, or even uh, Sanders? Do, do any of these people seem yeah. like they're on the right track to you. They are on the right track. The question is how far along on the track. Because once you get the chains off you of commercial money yeah. donations, then you have to have a public philosophy. Yeah. You have to know where you want to go, at what yeah. level you want to go, how deep you want to go. That's two. And the third, you must connect with the civic community yeah. for support. Because when the heat comes in on them, when they're pushing something in Congress, they get challenged in the primary by someone who looks like them but is a really a corporatist. Um, they don't have a base. They don't have uh, backing. And so I'm thinking of writing a column where I say, here are the things that the new progressive electees to Congress uh, can be judged by as to whether they're really going to be different and dig their heels in or whether they're going to be acculturated into the yeah. Pelosi system. Uh -huh. And one of them is, are they calling groups like ours? Uh -huh. Are they calling Common Cause, Public Citizen, People for the American Way, Center for Science and the Public Interest, Pension Rights Center? Uh -huh. And if they're not, it could be preliminary ignorance of our presence for the last 70, 60 years, uh -huh. or it could be the Bernie Sanders syndrome. Uh -huh. I'll, I'm going to do it alone. Uh -huh. And you can't do it alone. And no left movement. Uh, no. For justice, it, you know, can't be accomplished. Can be accomplished. There's no alone. way to build a movement. You can build a movement mm -hmm. from outside, inside, inside, outside. Mm -hmm. I don't have a vote in Congress, but they don't have a base if they mm -hmm. don't connect with us. So where where are the people in their 20s and 30s who are paying these student loans? Yeah. Why aren't they organizing? Why don't two percent of them organize? Mm -hmm. Start, you know, organized political groups in the in the congressional. Districts. Do they have to pay postage stamps? No. Do they have to pay long-distance telephone costs? No. Do they have a free communication system? Yes. What's their excuse? Yeah. They're looking at a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Too busy text messaging. Gossip. So what is your prediction for 2020? How do you think that's going to go down? Are you, are you, uh, are you going to run? Is there a draft nader? Uh, <laughs> Can we draft you? <laughs> you know, here, here's what I tell people. Two, three days before the election in 2000, uh, 2004, 2008, I would come in, CNN poll 5%, um, and it, except for 2000. Let's say 2004, 2008. And, I, and I'd, up, I'd been less than 1%. So I'm saying, how could this poll, which is a recent poll, be so wrong? And then it suddenly hit me that the bulb went off, and I said, you know, 80% of the people in this country know me. They know what I've done over the years. But 80% of the people didn't even know I was running. Yeah. Because when they poll people, they automatically know I'm running, right? right. When they poll 1,500. That's why I come out at 5%. I see, yeah. But when they go to the polls, they're reflecting the 80% didn't even know I was running. Yeah. I, mean, I never made any network news, not even, you know, maybe one, two minutes. Always as a spoiler. Mm -hmm. I would get on CNN, Judy Woodruff, and so on, only because of the spoiler. And the minute the spoiler thing went away, you couldn't get any, any media. Mm -hmm. 
So this is a, a coarse, grotesque cancer in the, the, the political system in the U.S. when people are not given a chance to have a chance. These are the same parties that want to give innovators and entrepreneurs and small business a chance. They don't want to give citizen innovators and uh, candidates a chance. And you know, without candidate ad ad access to the ballot, you depreciate the meaning of what the voters can do. The yeah. two go together. If you don't give them more voices and choices, their voters out there have less to convey because they're trapped in two plutocratic party duopolies. So that, that isn't viewed enough. People talk about voter suppression. They should talk about also candidate suppression. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's an interesting um, issue because there's a big push in the Democratic Party right now for, you know, we need to be the party of democracy. Um, uh, you know, they are suppressing votes. They're doing voter ID. They're doing all these things. And I, I kind of look at it as, as having been on, a, a, you know, on your campaign in 2008, and I'm kind of like, you know, you got, <laughs> it's sort of hard to take seriously. I mean, there are important issues, obviously, but you look at this and it's like, I'm, I'm not sure you guys have a real commitment to, you know, free, open elections, seeing as, you know, I experienced directly. I mean, even as a person on the ground, you'd run into people who would call the police and try to get you removed because they, you know, and they would come up to you and be like, I don't like Ralph. He's blah, blah, blah. I'm going to call the cops and try to get you kicked out in front of post offices and that sort of thing. And then, of course, you've got all the laws suits and you know I just it's, no it's they're just very hypocritical and th their conundrum today is they're trying to figure out how do they do the primary debates with 20 candidates <laughs> and so one proposal is you you have like a competition and uh, if uh, if they say put 20 on a stage and only the top 10 survive because they check with the polls. Mm -hmm. I mean, they control people by having polls, imagine. Yeah. And they tell, first of all, gerrymandering results in the politicians picking the voters. Imagine yeah. the absurdity. And polling is, is a way of controlling public opinion. Because how many times do they ask people uh, to express their polling opinion on corporate crime? I see, there are all kinds of questions not asked. Therefore, there's no polling opinion that citizen groups and candidates can adhere to and say, you know, look, there's a Gallup poll, 90% want crackdown on corporate yeah. crime. 90% want the big banks that are too big to fail to be broken up. Yeah. See, so polling is an extremely powerful and less reported manipulation because they, they give polling a pass if it's statistically accurate. You know, statistics. They don't say, what about all these questions, most important questions, like the ones that are on my website, votenator.org, in 2008. Mm -hmm. They don't ask questions about that. Like, they don't say, do you think the, aud the Pentagon budget should be audited? What's higher in 99%? 99% yeah. of people would say yes. <laughs> Yeah. What? So then you can build a movement around that, right? right. That's a huge left-right. You better watch it. It's going to be in the campaigns. Mm -hmm. Never ask the question. The pollsters work for the corporations. They work for the corporate media. You think they? And, that, and that's why you should pay a lot of attention to the debate commission. Mm -hmm. You know, we we sponsored the only book on the debate commission, and the debate commission is a combination of Democrat and and Republicans who decide who gets on and who doesn't. And their choices are agreed to by the NBC and CBS and Fox. 
You see? Yeah. So it, the, this, the manipulation is brilliant. It's, it's, it's contiguous. It, it's, it's constant. It, it doesn't leave any stone unturned. And, um, and again, it's the Congress stupid. It's the Congress stupid. It's the Congress stupid. That's the way around all of this. So we have to wrap up, but I have, I guess, two more questions for you. And okay. the first would be, you know, in a very brief way, what is the most important issue for you right now? You know, single issue. Civic motivation. Yeah. People don't show up, nothing happens. People don't show up, Congress doesn't change, politics doesn't change, nothing happens. And people are not showing up in record numbers. Um, I'm reminded of a... 19, in 1775 or so, there was a rally against uh, King George III in Farmington, Connecticut, and 6,000 people showed up, horsed carriages, walking. Yeah. It would take an invasion from Mars to get 6,000 <laughs> people to show up in Hartford yeah. today. Yeah. No, it's just uh, everywhere you go around the country, Activists are complaining. They can't get people out who agree with them. This isn't a matter, you know, we're going to yeah. persuade you. These are people who agree with you on the zoning thing or on the, you know, whatever, property tax or on uh, improving the roadways or public transit, you know, humdrum. It's very hard to get people to turn out. So what we do is we pass out $2 bills. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a $2 bill? What's on it? It's the table and the, the frocked uh, colonial leaders who came to sign the Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. July 4th, 1776. So we pass it out. You see these guys, they're all white, all male. Some of them are slave owners. But they did a good thing. Uh, you know, they got the ball rolling. And guess what? They were signing their death warrant when they signed that document and King George III. That's what they believed. So even though they're rich and so on, it was a courageous move. Even though it was in their interest economically, still, it was a courageous move at the time. And if you like the, the fact that they showed up, why don't you show up? Even that doesn't work. Yeah. In other words, you take all political science, all psychological profess studies, they have not given us the way to get people to show up, especially since the living room now is a global entertainment center 24 seven. Right. And then well, I guess the last question would be, what does it feel like to have saved millions of lives? Well, that we would have saved tens of millions of lives if we had a Congress as good as it was in the late 60s. So That's all we needed. You think if you were working now on the same issues, you know, seat belts, uh, automobile safety, you'd think you wouldn't have the same success you had then? It would be harder. Uh, yeah. I don't think uh, judging, certainly with the Republican Congress, most of the environmental worker safety consumer bills wouldn't even have gotten a hearing. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even give, you, give us a hearing on the tax bill, the health bill, and the tort deform uh, bills in the House. Didn't even have a hearing. That's unheard of. I don't think the reporters today realize how bad the Congress is historically, by historical comparisons. Yeah. And when Mike Perchuk, who was a staff uh, to Senator Magnuson, who was the, 
the great champion of consumer legislation and the pioneer in exposing the tobacco industry and getting the movement going. He wrote a book last year called When the Senate Worked for Us, came to Washington from Santa Fe, where he lives, for promotion, and everybody ignored him. Yeah. I called the head of the Hill, Cusick, and I said, how can you ignore it? You know, you're, this is on Congress. Yeah, it's just this old stuff that's history. When the Senate worked for us. In other words, he talked about the staff was much more professional. Now it's uh, K Street lobbyists on leave yeah. for a lot of them. But he couldn't get a review in the Post. He couldn't get any of the 452 full-time reporters on Congress to, to, to write it up. That's what the Post says. 450 full-time reporters. Never before have there been more Full-time reporters, you know, Politico, The Hill, uh, who knows, all the others. Uh, and, and they're all ditto-heading each other, largely. They're all ditto-heading. They're missing story after story after story. So the, the codicil to this discussion is, it is we the people, not just in the preamble, but in anything that happens in this country. Bad or good, we allow it to happen. It's in our own hands, one way or the other. And we have to fight for it. Yep. As uh, you know, as Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never has, never will. Ralph Nader, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome.